0: Hi guys, welcome back. We're still traveling backward through the history of Arabia. And today we shall conclude the story of the 20th century. Or should that be kick off the 20th century? It gets confusing, but don't worry about it. We'll be talking about the first part of the 1900s. That's the thing that matters, I guess. And Saudi Arabia will take center stage again. Since last time, we talked mostly about Yemen and the East a little recapitulation may be in order i guess so here goes in earlier episodes we saw that the saudi kings have long faced a dilemma while the americans keep other countries from taking over their oil fields they depend on wahhabi clerics for their legitimacy the problem is that these two guardian angels don't always get along to put it mildly The USA is suspicious of the Wahhabis, who have a reputation for spreading violent radicalism and inspiring some terror groups even. For their part, the strict ulama take the presence of unbelievers in the home of Islam as an affront. Both sometimes blame the king. The clerics say he must protect the holy land of Islam from profane influences, while the Americans think he ought to stop the export of radical Islam. This is what you get when you are so clearly in charge. In an absolute monarchy, the king is where the buck stops, obviously. Indeed, the crown prince is currently being busy trying to change the rules of this game. So he can't do that. But the problem has long plagued his predecessors. Today, we'll see how they ended up with this conundrum. We've already partially answered that question in previous episodes. For instance, Last time, we saw that the Arab Cold War put the Saudis firmly within the Western Bloc, while Islam would be their rallying cry in the ideological struggle against Nasser. In the fourth episode, we discussed how there emerged an unspoken alliance with America after the oil crisis of 1973. And we saw that the kingdom was frightened into making concessions to religious fanatics for fear of an Islamic revolution like the one that had happened in Iran in 1979. Saddam's invasion of Kuwait made the alliance with the Americans even more open and hence more controversial. But that still leaves many questions unanswered. Why was the kingdom associated with Wahhabism in the first place, for instance? For of all these sects that are available, This is not exactly the easiest partner. As we shall see today, this alliance is in fact the foundation upon which Saudi Arabia was built. But at the same time, from the earliest beginnings, there was also a pagan kingmaker in Arabia. And that was not the USA, but Great Britain. At the start of the 20th century, the British were mostly interested in protecting the route between the Suez Canal and India. They didn't bother to involve themselves too much with the interior of Arabia, and no wonder, this was a very poor place still. The oil boom was nowhere in sight, and it was also very tumultuous. The British had been happy to leave that hornet's nest to the local hegemon, the Ottoman Turks. The Ottomans are nearly forgotten in the West today, but at the time they were an important player. We shall yet talk about their empire at length, but for understanding today's story, there are only so many things that you should know. For one, the Ottomans were the closest thing that the Islamic world came to political unification since the Middle Ages. At its height, the Ottoman sultans were way more powerful than any European king. Not only had they controlled the lion's share of the Middle East and North Africa, their forces had even stood at the gates of Vienna at some time. At the beginning of the 20th century, however, the Ottoman Empire had seen better days. It was long regarded as the sick man of Europe. European nations were tempted to take over Ottoman lands, and they seized upon any excuse to do so. It was never hard to find one, as there were internal stirrings inside the Ottoman territory all the time, like, for instance, on the Arabian Peninsula. Here we meet the man who was to become the founder of modern-day Saudi Arabia, Abdelaziz ibn Saud. The Sauds were strictly speaking considered royalty, but they were fallen glory at best, for they had lost the allegiance of the tribes of central Arabia, which had shifted to their arch-rivals, the al-Rashids. These also profited from the support of the Ottomans, as well as from the fact that the Arabians were notoriously fickle in their alliances. But in time, they would discover the flip side of that coin, they would lose the local support again, and this was to a large degree because of their mighty patrons. For the Ottomans were not Arabs. Their beliefs and customs differed from those of the local majority in Arabia, and this became more problematic as they started to meddle more actively in Arab affairs. In the conservative heart of Arabia, and particularly in the town of Rijad, the Al-Rashids faced unrest, And the wandering Saudi prince saw this as an opportunity. With only a handful of men, he managed to capture the city. So at that point, Abdelaziz was in possession of the later capital of Saudi Arabia. But this still didn't mean that he could call himself king. That would take another 30 years of fighting. For the time being, the Al-Rashids still had the upper hand militarily. And unlike them, the Saudis did not control important trade routes. Before the Petroleum Age, the caravans were still a crucial source of income in Arabia, needed to keep the people happy and loyal. So even after Abdelaziz had captured Riyadh, the odds were still stacked against him. Lacking material means to seduce the tribal warriors, he had to think out of the box. His method would have grave consequences Till this day. He made common cause with the Wahhabi clerics. The agreement was as follows the Wahhabis would convert the local nomads. Saud would then settle them, so that they could more easily be controlled, as well as instructed in their new faith. But he also adopted the Wahhabi position that their custom of looting was a violation of Islam. Now, aside from obtaining spiritual redemption, this all doesn't seem like a good deal for the Bedouin nomads, don't you think? What was in it for them? Well, although looting was prohibited, that did not apply for the spoils of a just war. Now try to guess against whom this jihad was to be directed. Right, against Abdelaziz's rivals, the al-Rashids, and their main source of income, namely the caravans. The fact that the al-Rashids were clearly subject to the Ottomans, who were more liberal when it came to religious doctrine, that meant that they could easily be portrayed as heretics. If the Arabian traders, or anyone for that matter, wanted to avoid being treated as such. They'd better accept the Wahhabi faith. So the former nomads became shock troops who not only spread the faith, but also in the meantime, Saudi rule. Whether or not they were motivated by greed or religious zeal is up for debate. Presumably it was a mix of both. These Bedouins became known as the Ikwan or the Brotherhood. And true to desert tradition, that's how they regarded themselves. As the king's brothers, not as his loyal subjects, he was supposed to lead them to glory in battle, and thereby make them rich. Now that was not really a problem, as long as there were plenty of spoils to be fought over. There would be no lack of fighting in the years to come, for the tribal clashes in the nate would soon become part of the biggest conflict that the world had ever seen, the First World War. Now, the Ottoman Sultan would have preferred to stay out of that conflict altogether, but that was clearly fanciful thinking. For all the major allied forces, Britain, France, and most of all Russia, had territorial ambitions in his hinterland, especially in the Middle East. When the British navy switched from coal to oil, Churchill would openly underline the strategic importance of the Arabian reserves. The Sultan was well aware of the danger, so he tried to join the allied cause, but unsurprisingly, he was rebuffed. At that point, it was crystal clear that the Allied powers would not leave the Ottoman lands alone, no matter what. Germany, by comparison, was not regarded as an immediate threat, and it was eager to enlist the Sultan as an ally. Not so much because they held his military capabilities in high esteem, but because many Muslims still regarded him as the Caliph, the most important figure in Islam. This included huge numbers of colonial subjects of the French and British empires. If the Sultan, as commander of the faithful, would call upon all Muslims to prepare for jihad against their Christian overlords, that would gravely destabilize these empires. And that was exactly what the Sultan did as soon as he entered the war. The Allies understood very well what problems this might entail for them. So they immediately started looking for another reverend Islamic leader to balance out the sultan's power. They found this figure, ironically, in the person of the highest religious official, appointed by the sultan himself, the Sharif of Mecca. Convinced by the illustrious Lawrence of Arabia, Sharif Hussein declared his own counter-jihad against the central powers. Both calls to war had mixed success, depending on the region where the Muslims in question lived. In a place like India, which was colonized by Britain, many wanted to fight for the Caliph. But in Arabia, on the other hand, the Ottomans were very much disliked. Especially since the young Turks had taken control of the Ottoman capital in 1908. Some Arabs at first naively expected such Turkish nationalists to leave them alone. But instead, there followed a campaign of Turkification, which enraged the Arabs. Their chiefs turned to the British for help and these seized upon this opportunity. The coastal sheikhdoms of the east and south were already largely under their sway. Kuwait had put itself under British protection at the turn of the century. Qatar followed suit during the war. By then, even the Saudi territory had become, for all intents and purposes, a trucial state, much like the later emirates. The British gave Abdelaziz modern weapons, so that he would fight the Ottomans with them. After all, his rivals, the Al-Rashids, were clients of the Turks. Indeed, it turned out that they had bet on the wrong horse. The Central Powers would lose the war, the Ottoman Empire would be destroyed, and hence, they would lose their protector. Consequently, Saud would eventually be able to overcome this once superior foe. But first, he recognized a unique opportunity. He turned his attention to the West, to the land of Mecca and Medina that was the homeland of the Sharif, but he was preoccupied with the Arab revolt and the fight against the Turks cost him dearly, which made him vulnerable to pressure from the Saudis, who should in theory have been on the same team as him. So, ironically, this meant that because he had fought loyally for the Allied cause, the Sharif was in a weak position when the war ended. He already had reason to feel at town because the British had not protected him from Saud, But that was just a start. The British had promised him, more or less, that should he lead the Arab revolt, they would make him king of Greater Arabia. And he now expected them to honor their pledge, of course. But gratefulness is a rare thing in international politics. Bargaining power is much more important, and the Sharif had just lost much of his. The British had little use for him anymore. Abdelaziz, on the other hand, was now in a position to cause big problems for Britain's allies in the region. Besides, the British had also made promises to the Jews and the French, which were incompatible to a unified Arabian kingdom. And they probably never had any intention of creating one giant Arab nation in the first place. For after all, it became plain that the strategic importance of the Middle East would only rise in the following years, because of oil, to name just one thing. Both they and the French preferred a divided Middle East, which they could control. In the middle of the war they had agreed to carve up the Arab parts of the Ottoman Empire, thereby creating the modern Middle East as we know it. France would dominate Syria, while the region around Palestine would become a Jewish home. The Sharif now at least expected his family uh, to rule these smaller kingdoms, but that didn't go so smoothly either. His son Faisal, who had played a leading role in the war, was to be king of Syria, but he would not sit on that throne for long. The French claimed Syria as their mandate, which is a colony that couldn't be called a colony. And after a short and very one-sided war, Faisal was chased away. As a consolation prize, the British offered him the kingship of Iraq, and his brother Abdullah would become king of Transjordan. But there was no question of the Sharif becoming king of all Arab lands. He would even lose his home turf to the Saudis in 1927. Now you can imagine that all this created bad blood between the Saudis and the family of the Sharif. And hence between Saudi Arabia on one side and Iraq and Transjordan on the other. The feud between these Arab monarchies was only put on hold when they faced a common enemy, namely the Egyptian President Nasser. Ironically, this new threat was at its core a movement for Arab reunification, like the Sharif had envisioned. Yet it was clear that such a project, if it were led by Nasser, would have no place for the Arab kings. So while the Sharif at once demanded a united Arabia, his descendants would soon do whatever they could to stop this from happening. This, I think, illustrates why the dream of Arab unification never materialized it may be widely cherished by the Arab people, but if it runs against the interests of nearly all their natural leaders, well, it won't happen. In the United Arabia, all but one would lose their position. Whenever unification movement did occur, that was because the weaker party was in a desperate state and could not hope to survive on its own. That would be the case with the absorption of Syria by Egypt and with uh, the unification of Yemen. We've covered that in previous episodes already. Now, an important reason why the British want to Abdulaziz was to prevent his brotherhood from causing unrest in their Gulf Treaty states or in Iraq. Alas for them, he found it ever harder to control them. As their name implies, these Ikhwan didn't see themselves as subjects that uh, take orders. They wanted to follow a commander who gave them booty and advanced their Wahhabi fate. And both these things became harder because of Saud's understanding with the British. They introduced modern devices, which the Ikhwan refused to accept. Cars, watches and telegraphs were very useful for the kingdom. But in the eyes of the Brotherhood, these novelties were tools of the devil. After all, everything that the prophet didn't use was haram. While the king enjoyed the radio, they despised music. It would only distract people from prayer, they thought. Much like today's terror groups, they forbade every part of consumer culture. They also refused to listen when Abdelaziz told them to stay away from the neighboring territories under British protection, like Iraq and Kuwait. They raided there anyway, and that provoked the ire of the British. Abdelaziz was smart enough to understand he had to avoid a repetition of this at all cost. So he turned on his former brothers. Ironically, making good use of some of these satanic innovations, machine guns. The camel riders were mowed down in about half an hour. This would not be the last time that the Saudi kings would have to choose between modernization, their western allies and their super strict fanatical followers. After their defeat, the Ikhwan were disbanded. Those that showed themselves loyal became some sort of royal guard, a counterweight to the army. Abdelaziz could be forgiven for not trusting his army officers, given the military coups in neighboring states. But the ghosts of the fanatical brotherhood would continue to haunt this monarchy. Some of these tribes would yet play a role in the capture of the Grand Mosque in Mecca in 1979. As we saw earlier, this would frighten the Saudis in giving in to the demands of the radicals. Until that time, the royals would be more favorable to, modernize, to uh, modernization, but that didn't mean that Abdelaziz would remain faithful to the British. After all, they had not shown themselves very trustworthy themselves either, as their treatment of the Sharif illustrates, and the fact that they were so interested in the region's oil and accustomed to colonization, that made the Saudis wary. Abdelaziz would seek and find another ally, one that spoke out against imperialism and promoted self-determination, the USA. It's a funny thing how the popularity of empires can shift. When the Ottomans were close, the Arabs preferred the British. When the British showed their imperialist feathers, the locals turned to the US. And now, many religious fanatics call America the Great Satan. Great powers are valuable friends, as long as they stay at a distance, I guess. It should be said that the alliance was not political at first. Rather, the foundations were led by the oil industry. Saud's treasury was empty, and it was a California oil company that would save him from bankruptcy. Only at the end of the Second World War, the American government would step in, after a friendly meeting between Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the Saudi founding father. In the meantime, the oil industry would contribute more to local development than the Saudi government, which was hardly worthy of the name at the time, The oil rich east became a state within the state where expats were already living in a secluded liberal society and the political struggles between saudi arabia on the one hand and the later emirates and oman on the other could also be seen as a clash between the american and british oil companies over their right to drill in a, a region without clear borders the later emirates had known a reasonably prosperous period at the beginning of the century when pearls were very much in demand. But the pearling business collapsed abruptly in the 30s, with the advent of the financial crisis, and more importantly, of Japanese pearl farms. Yet the British still wanted to prevent the Trucial Coast from becoming a pirate coast once again. And they believed that there was a lot of oil in the ground already, so they decided to stick around and protect the sheikhs against Saudi expansion. For much the same reason, they also supported the sultan of Muscat and Oman. In practice, they even controlled most of his administration. Partly because of this, there would emerge a rebellion in the religious interior of Oman, centred on the local imam. Even though the British would help him take control of the interior again, the sultan's rule would invite further unrest. He was extremely conservative and repressive, which contributed to the fact that Oman, once the center of a true empire, as we'll see, was now one of the poorest places on earth. Abdelaziz had supported the imams' rebellion to counter the influence of the British, which led to further friction between these former allies. The Saudis and the British became very unfriendly until Nasser became their common enemy, endangering both their interests and thence pushing them back into each other's arms. If Abdelaziz had directly threatened the city of Aden, however, they might have come to blows. It's not that he wouldn't be tempted. Aden had become the second largest port in the world, only after New York. Hard to imagine now, right? Since the opening of the Suez Canal, the Aden harbor had become a crucial entrepot for British ships, to the detriment of the east coast of Arabia, by the way. But the Saudis didn't come anywhere near Aden, because there are advance was obstructed by a buffer state. In North Yemen, a Shia Imam had taken advantage of the Ottoman implosion to carve out an independent kingdom for himself. The Imam, Jahia, claimed both secular and religious powers. He wasn't exactly a business-friendly person, but to be fair, the location of his lands didn't really facilitate openness either, as it was locked in between uh, powerful rivals. Jaiya could not penetrate the coastal area around Aden, as the British had forced the surrounding tribes into an agreement. The Imamate was itself not even safe from raids by the Royal Air Force. And in the North, there were the Saudis. So like Oman, the Yemeni Imamate was destined to remain isolated and poor, because of the environment and because of the mentality of the leader. Their backwardness would in time make them tempting targets for revolutionaries. Places where the Arab Cold War could turn hot, as we've seen last time. I'd like to end this episode by contemplating one of the great what-ifs of modern history. What would have been the consequences had Britain honoured its commitment to the Sharif of Mecca by granting him dominion over Greater Arabia? Alternatively, what if the Allied forces had welcomed the Sultan on their side in World War I? Imagine, in other words, that the Middle East would not be divided. Now, just to be clear, it's far from unthinkable that the region would have been broken up anyway. The Sharif was little known outside his own region, and the Turks were widely unpopular. Both could hardly protect their territory against aggressors. The multi-ethnic Ottoman Empire might have no chance to survive the rise of nationalism. Although, you might say that Russia and China are multi-ethnic empires too, and they are still intact for the moment. But at least we have to acknowledge that the current borders of the Middle East would not be on the map today. These are largely arbitrary and the result of First World War diplomacy. If these diplomats had made a different decision, there is no Syria, no Iraq, no Kuwait, no Lebanon, no Israel. World politics would look a lot different then, and that's an understatement. And it becomes even more interesting if you imagine one giant state instead, not only uniting all these peoples, but also controlling a giant chunk of the world's oil. Consider the shifting of the balance of power after the oil crisis in the 70s then. This might have given a Middle Eastern superstate the means to survive, to thrive even. Now imagine that this were the case. Would that make relations with the West better or worse? At first sight, this might seem threatening to Europeans. But if the British and the French had given the Arabs their independence, and the new king would be their ally, and also the leader of the Arab revolt, then who knows, maybe the prospects for their relationship might not be all that bad, in the short term at least. In the longer run, working with such an Arab superstate might be more like dealing with Russia. This is more dangerous in a sense, yes. Such a state would almost certainly obtain nuclear weapons, for instance. But on the other hand, instability is not exactly ideal either. At least in Russia, it's clear who you can talk to. And that government has no interest in risking a big world war, you might say. Desperate regimes or non-state actors have less to lose. If a relatively stable and prosperous Arab superstate would exist, would terrorism still be a problem? Would there even be a refugee problem? It's impossible to say whether this would be better or worse, so we probably shouldn't spend too much energy musing about what could have been, but at least it can remind us that things need not necessarily be, or stay, the way that they are. If a few people had made different calculations 100 years ago, the world would look very different today. We might look at this as a cautionary tale, perhaps. Some strategists think that Russia might break up in the not-too-distant future, I imagine that many in the West would see this as something to look forward to, since this giant neighbor does look very threatening indeed. But given what happened after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, they should perhaps think twice. For should the same fate befall the Russians, the consequences for the world might be terrible. You would then have a lot of instable countries with nukes, some of which might become little North Koreas. But we have no way of knowing such things in advance, of course. So if you have a different opinion, you can always send me an email or talk to me on Facebook. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, consider leaving a good review or rating. It only takes a few seconds of your time and it's greatly encouraging. Also because it attracts more listeners. Thanks again. Talk to you soon.